You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. This is Prashant Parameswaran from Washington, D.C. How's it going today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. We're uh, we're coming up on the end of 2018 here. It's been an exciting uh, week of news, certainly in the United States. Um, but as we do with the podcast uh, around the year's end, and we did on the most recent episode, uh, I think it's a good opportunity to talk about the year ahead. 2019 and sort of lay out some of the things to watch for and to pay attention to. Um, and I think we've done this in recent years uh, where we've kind of laid out the electoral landscape in Asia for the year ahead. Um, so 2019, it actually turns out, is going to be a pretty significant year for democracy in Asia uh, around, you know, Two countries in particular, India and Indonesia, are home to 1.6 billion people between them, um, and both of them are going to be having major elections. Um, Indonesia is going to have presidential elections on April 17th, and India will have um, elections for the lower house or general elections that will determine uh, which party will get to field the next prime minister. Uh, so for Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the next six months are really kind of a sprint to the finish line of, uh, of these new general elections. And apart from that, we'll also briefly touch on some of the uh, other elections that are on the horizon. Uh, Afghanistan is scheduled to have a presidential election on April 20th, but there are some ambiguities there about whether that will go ahead on schedule or whether there'll be delays due to a range of factors. Um, and later in the year, uh, the Philippines is scheduled to hold, um, hold midterm elections, uh, which won't have any effect on the leadership. Uh, the national leadership, President Duterte, will remain in office, but it will be for much um, for offices across the country. So we can talk a bit about that. And also, Prashant, uh, we can also discuss what the Thais have in plan for their mm -hmm. February elections and if those are going to go on uh, go on ahead. Um, so I guess, you know, why don't we start with uh, Indonesia? Uh, I, think, I think, you know, that's probably a good straightforward place to begin this conversation. So... Uh, Prashant, you know, tell us a bit about kind of the lay of the land in Indonesia leading up to these elections. So the most notable thing that jumps out to a lot of the observers that uh, is, you know, you're basically going to have a rematch between the same two personalities, uh, Jokowi and Prabowo, uh, going into this. But what has changed uh, since the last elections in 2014? Yeah, so that's the sort of um, the broad overview, which is that, I mean, you're right, it, it is kind of seems like a little bit of a deja vu, right? Went back to the 2014 elections where you have the, uh, this time the incumbent Joko Widodo um, against Prabowo Subianto. Um, I think there's two key things that are a little bit different. One is, I think we now have a sense, um, and it, it was clear when Jokowi came to office, and this is, since this is a geopolitical podcast, um, you know, his foreign policy um, has been quite disappointing uh, in terms of, you know, Indonesia has traditionally been seen as a leader uh, on, on the world stage and also in Southeast Asia. But we've seen uh, the Indonesians not really have a very strong, uh, coherent uh, foreign policy. It's been very domestic focused. It's not that there haven't been uh, priorities that are advanced, but it's definitely um, quite a shift from what we saw under uh, the former president. Um, so that's one angle I think that that uh, to watch now that we have a clear sense of um, that Jokowi has tended to have a more domestic focus foreign policy. What could we see in a second term that might change, if anything, or are we just going to see um, a continuation of what we saw in the first term? The other thing that that has changed is, um, and and I wouldn't say this is a radical departure, but it's just an in intensification. The concerns around the exercise of democracy in elections itself, there are a lot more concerns on that front. So whether it's um, the proliferation of fake news, 
um, the fact that um, Indonesian democracy, there's a sense that there's a lot more sort of radical Islamist messaging that's going around. It's, it's a perception more than a reality. This has always been kind of a tug of war between uh, moderates and more radical factions. And then also cybersecurity. I mean, there's, you know, real fears um, that there could be instances of hacking that could undermine the actual exercise of the election itself. So I would say, I mean, those are the two main things that have changed. But, you know, in general, though, you're going to see a lot more continuity as these elections uh, come to fore, right? So, um, you know, whether it's cash handouts by Jokowi, um, Prabowo questioning, um, you know, Jokowi's, um, you know, whether it's his credentials in governing or, or his religious background, um, a lot more courting of the Islamist vote. Um, so these are things that are very uh, sort of continuous in Indonesian elections. But I think those would be the two big changes that we'd see. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the note on political Islam that you mentioned is, is quite interesting, especially, you know, the questioning of Jokowi's credentials. So one of the one of the factors that kind of stood out to me is, um, you know, Jokowi's running mate um, is a Muslim cleric, uh, Maruf Amin of uh, Natatul Ulama, the world's largest uh, Muslim organization. Um, what what do you think, uh, you know, what effect is that having on, on the race? And uh, do you think that's uh, effectively going to help Jokowi out in the elections? I mean, do you have a prediction, first of all, for, you know, how the election is likely to go based on polling and uh, other dynamics right now in Indonesia? Yeah, I think Jokowi's position uh, is quite strong. So I think he's he's still the favorite and the one to beat. Um, but the experience that we had in, in the election in 2014 um, shows that in, in Indonesia, you, you know, you really shouldn't count the votes before um, the election actually happened. I mean, in fact... In 2014, in the weeks leading up to the election, the lead actually, Jokowi's lead narrowed significantly, and it looked like Prabowo was actually going to win. Um, and so it ended up being a very slim victory for him. Um, so that's, I, I think, on the outcome front. In terms of uh, political Islam and, and the appointment of his running mate, Maruf Amin, um, I think it, it, it really depends on uh, the spectrum of views that you have. I think there are more pragmatic observers who would say, look, this is something that Jokowi needed to do. He needed to appoint somebody who um, had these religious credentials in order to protect himself from Prabowo and other observers. But I think there there are other folks who are you know of, of a of a different view, which is that you know the the way to stand up to these forces is actually to uh, very strongly distance yourself from them and employ different tactics from what we've seen in the past. I mean, the former Indonesian president Susilo Bambangido, you know, um, was infamous for this, where he used to um, give in uh, several times to, um, you know, so-called Islamist groups, um, in fact, co-opting them um, into his coalition as well. And that led him to actually take a very uh, hard stance in terms of, you know, for uh, religious groups and led to significant consequences for Indonesia and its, its reputation as a moderate Muslim country. So I, I think it, there's there's different views on that, um, but I do sense. I mean, uh, you know, when I've been to Indonesia um, last few months, there there really is a sense of disappointment um, that it you know Jokowi has had to resort to this in order to win the election. Um, but on the other hand, I, I really do think there are observers who think you know this is by no means an assured victory for Jokowi. So this is something that he might need to do. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the. The other big one for um, Asia elections in 2019, as you mentioned, is 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 India, and I think you know interesting because 
when Jokowi and Modi came onto the world stage, I mean, we really did see this. This was the beginning of the phase of so-called, you know, um, populist leaders or a populist wave in Asia, right? Um, and so it's interesting to see that we're now in, in, in 2019 um, back to these two leaders um, back in office to see, even though in Indonesia it's presidential elections and in India it's it's parliamentary. Um, but what's your sense of, um, you know, what are the big things we should be looking for as, as India heads to uh, that election, um, both in terms of Modi's position, but then also, I guess, you know, for listeners, you, you probably mentioned briefly, too, um, in previous conversations we've had on India, um, you know, we, India's tradition is of, you know, the previous years, we've seen coalition governments and very messy politics. I mean, is there, you know, what is the risk that we might return to that um, in, in, in the years that follow? Yeah, so, you know, I'll kind of begin with my kind of top line prediction six months out, which is likely to be wrong. I mean, it's it's dangerous to predict the future, but I'll do it anyways on this podcast. Um, I mean, my, my best guess for what happens in, um, you know, late April, May 2019, when the Indian Lok Sabha elections go down is that the BJP will win, but it will it won't win with the kind of margin that it um, mm. it gained in 2014, which was mainly, in my view, a result of massive anti-incumbency sentiment against the Congress party, which still exists in India, but the Congress is doing better than it has been. Um, more on that in a bit, but uh, but you know, in general, I think the BJP is likely to still come out on top with Modi safely probably securing himself another term in office, but it will have to do so with coalition partners. And that's where I think it's going to um, really, I think we're going to see if the, the BJP's partnerships across the country with various regional parties are going to end up paying dividends. Because I think the big story in Indian politics over the uh, over the last five years has been the increased prominence of regional parties across the country as the BJP has kind of consolidated its power on the national level. So the Indian National Congress uh, which was historically dominant in India, has really been struggling in the last five years, um, primarily due to its kind of old-fashioned clinging to the dynastic politics of the Gandhi family. Rahul Gandhi is still kind of the face of the party, and he's just not seen as a charismatic type to really compete with someone like Narendra Modi, who is widely perceived to be charismatic. Um, but at the same time, you know, anti-incumbency is a powerful force in Indian politics. I think that's clearly a lesson that we take away from um, Indian political history. So... The BJP, I think, is going to be facing some of that, right? Um, so this mm -hmm. week for this podcast is quite interesting because the BJP just lost uh, several assembly elections in, in three critical states. Um, I wouldn't read too much into that because the way districting works for the Lok Sabha elections is quite different. And the BJP actually managed a significant vote share. It's just the nature of, you know, first past the post voting that didn't work out in their favor in these particular elections. Um but so mm -hmm. when it comes to anti-incumbency sentiment of the BJP, I think one of the issues that's going to be important to watch is, um, you know, the economic referendum on Modi, I think, is going to be um, tough for the BJP. I mean, there are there are issues that the urban middle classes care about that the BJP has really uh, sort of botched and doesn't really have time to fix. You know, demonetization is obviously the whopper uh, when that was implemented in November 2016, the same year as the um, the same week, actually, as the U.S. presidential elections. Um, effectively, the Modi government took a highly a page out of heterodox economics and basically removed from the money supply a, about 86% of the actual notes in circulation and replaced them with new notes. And that caused kind of major crisis across the country. Um, it, it ended up hurting a lot of people, particularly the uh, vulnerable rural poor who weren't able to exchange their uh, savings and things like that. So that was kind of widely regarded as a crisis. 
And But the Modi government is doubling down on the legacy of demonetization, right? So the Reserve Bank of India's chairman, Urjit Patel, just stepped down. And he's been replaced with uh, the former finance secretary, who was one of the main cheerleaders of this policy. So the, the BJP isn't acknowledging uh, that it did anything wrong or this was a misstep. It's really kind of doubling down on its economic record here. Uh, the other issue, which was kind of more a process of botched implementation uh, rather than conception, is the goods and services tax which uh, hasn't really been implemented in the way that um, at least many foreign investors hope. So these two issues, I think, really concern kind of um, the, you know, the wealthy upper upper and upper middle class uh, urban citizens in India, many of whom have come around to supporting the BJP, uh, which in 2014 came to power with the slogan of uh, minimum government, maximum governance. So the mm-hmm. idea was that they would really help India break out of its lull, um, you know, under the Congress um, rule over the past decade and spur in a new era of growth. And for a moment, it seemed like that was true. India was posting fantastic growth numbers. It was the fastest growing emerging, a large emerging economy in the world. Um, but these doldrums have really set in. Uh, the other issue is on um, on economic issues. I think the BJP is going to have to answer for um you know some of the uh, some of the grievances among powerful large v- voting groups in India, including farmers, um, who I think perceive the government to have been unable to deliver on significant promises that have been made. So I think you know this uh, this 2019 election is going to be interesting. I mean, the BJP is certainly still in a nationally dominant position. Its biggest threat, if anything, is not the Congress party, uh, but really I think you know the election is going to come down to how um, just how much of a referendum this turns out to be on Modi and specifically some of these big economic policies that I discussed, um, mm. but also, you know, how the regional parties factor in. The Congress mm. could pull off something big if it managed to actually build the kinds of coalitions necessary going into the election to to actually, you know, put up a significant challenge to the BJP's own coalition building. So I think there'll be interesting times ahead um, in mm-hmm. May after these elections. Um, but as far as foreign policy goes, I think it's actually going to be a pretty minor issue in the uh, overall general elections in India, as they kind of historically happen in the past. Mm-hmm. So maybe from there, I guess we can switch quickly to some of the others. So Afghanistan is one, um, which, you, which you mentioned. That's, I think, scheduled to hap- happen in, in April. Um, given the fact that, uh, as you said, I mean, first of all, we, we're, we're not sure if it's uh, actually going to be held. I mean, the parliamentary elections themselves uh, were, were, were held quite late. Um, and uh, amidst uh, a lot of violence. Um, but I guess this is happening at an interesting time more broadly for Afghanistan because um, President Trump uh, and his approach and strategy to Afghanistan, um, it offers an interesting angle and, and contrast. Um, and it might also tell us a little bit about uh, Ghani and, and his uh, domestic political position and some of the other internal dynamics there, right? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, so they are scheduled for April. Um, The possibility of a delay, I think, is quite likely at this point, um, primarily Mm -hmm. due to kind of safety and logistical issues. Um, I mean, the fundamental problem with uh, all these delayed elections in Afghanistan and one of the issues that that came up with the the national unity government when it was formed in 2014 was the uh, fundamental issue of the legitimacy of the Afghan political system, right? I mean, a big part of the conflict between the Taliban and the Afghan government is over the legitimacy of the state itself and, uh, you know, continuous delays to elections, uh, disagreements over the outcomes of those elections, the conduct of those elections really chip away uh, at the Afghan state's legitimacy. So there is, I think, a strong interest to have these elections on time. It's just that um, I think practical factors will make that less likely. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, as we saw with the parliamentary elections, they were delayed by about three years and there was still massive violence. Um, So 
you know, a lot can still happen in the five months that remain before the scheduled date. Um, I'm mm-hmm. I'm not optimistic that the ongoing uh, peace talks uh, with um, Zalmay Khalilzad leading the process for the United States will produce uh, a breakthrough that will allow these elections to uh, happen on time and occur without any major hitches. Um, I think, you know, Ashraf Ghani is on board with having the Taliban participate politically even, um, but I think... Uh, you know, given given events on the ground in Afghanistan, I think that all seems quite unlikely. So I guess the I guess the bottom line in Afghanistan is kind of we just have to wait and see if uh, if these elections will actually end up going forward. Um, but you know, along along similar lines, Prashant, I think that that's actually a good segue maybe to talk a bit about I guess what could potentially be the first major Asian election of the year if it does happen, which is um, the uh, scheduled elections in Thailand. Um, mm-hmm. So February twenty fourth is a date still, I understand, but um, is this going to go forward? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess similar lines in the sense that, um, you know, since the coup and the government takeover, there have been promises um, of elections over multiple years and, and you know, several delays now. Uh, I think this time there, there there is a sort of sense by the government that they do need to um, hold these polls. I mean, they've been postponing this for a long time. We, we've seen um, them. Uh, do things like ease um, some bans that have been placed on political parties and actors ahead of elections. So all signs are that they probably will do this. The other incentive that they have to do it um, early on in the year and not further postpone it is that um, it it gets that out of the way before uh, Thailand embarks on its uh, ASEAN chairmanship through the rest of the year. I mean, it will officially hold it for the whole of next year. Um, but it's before a lot of the legwork will begin and you see a lot of the symmetry that, that goes on in Thailand. The reason why that's significant is the last time Thailand held the ASEAN chairmanship, um, you literally had a case where um, there was violence amid uh, these meetings and, and they actually had to be um, stopped and halted. And that was a big embarrassment for Thailand. So there is that additional sort of um, foreign policy, if you like, a reason uh, for why they need to hold this. Um, the big question, though, for for Thailand is, you know, the, the the simple bumper sticker, which is, you know, will these elections actually matter? Um, because essentially, during the period since the junta took over, um, they've been basically doing all they can to ensure that um, there won't be a clear and significant victory for any of the parties that are linked to former Prime Minister Thaksin Srinawatra. Um, and so essentially they, they've, they've altered the, the rules, they've made sure that there are political restrictions on certain parties that, um, that oppose them and that they don't especially like. And so even if the elections are held, I mean, we, we, I, I'm not sure that this is going to actually fundamentally resolve um, the Thai political conundrum, which, you know, we've been dealing now, we talk about political transition. I mean, since Thaksin came to power and he was ousted in the initial coup, that was back in 2001. So we're really talking about, you know, nearly two decades um, of Thailand's domestic political transition. So I, I, I'm afraid, I mean, even though I'd like to think that this election will uh, get Thailand through um, this political mess that it's in, uh, I think it's just another phase in, in Thais trying to figure out the balance between uh, various aspects of rule, right? One is democratic rule, but then also making sure that there's adequate space in Thailand for these political elites, whether it's um, the new king that's been installed, the military, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So you know, if they if they do announce a delay or a, or another postponement, um, is that is that going to in itself cause uh, instability and violence? Do you think? 
Yeah, that's the risk. I mean, uh, I think the the calculation um, that many experts have had in mind is that the longer that these uh, delays are, are put in place, the, the, the stronger and fiercer the negative uh, sentiment will be against the the government um, and the military. So I, I definitely think that, especially this time around, um, you know, there, there will be some violence. And then the issue becomes really, um, how does the military respond, whether it's through force um, and, and how Thailand's politics uh, unravel in response? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so to close this out, I guess, um, you know, at the uh, at the end of June, um, or I guess in May, um, with the um, winners taking office in late June, rather, uh, we have um, midterm elections in the Philippines, um, which we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast, kind of the domestic politics in the Philippines and kind of Rodrigo Duterte's um, popularity levels. Um, but what are some of the issues to watch here? And um, and is there a potential foreign policy angle to the uh, outcome of the Philippine uh, midterm results in your view? Yeah, so usually these these elections, midterm elections in the Philippines um, are, are, are not very closely monitored. Um, there are things that take place and there are actually, I mean, this is a, a big exercise in democracy. You know, you're talking about representatives, you're talking about governors, you're talking about mayors, councillors, all the way down. So this is a significant exercise in democracy, but it usually doesn't get um, as much coverage. But I suspect, you know, as you noted, um, because this has to do with um, President Duterte and his time in power, and um, you know, analysts have been looking for any opportunity to kind of assess what his popularity will be, irrespective of the outcome. I, I think you are going to see significant coverage um, of these elections as a sort of litmus test for Duterte's popularity. I don't I don't think you'll see too much of a, a sort of change on foreign policy front. <clears throat> but what I would say is there are a lot of domestic priorities that Duterte has um, you know, put forward. Um, some of these with respect to the southern Philippine peace process, for example. Um, he's talked about federalism. Uh, he's talked about constitutional revision and change. These are things which uh, I think worry a lot of political observers because of the Philippines. I mean, several of the presidents since um, the Philippines became a recent wave of democracy in 1986, um, you know, haven't finished their term in office. And in the Philippines, it's a single six-year term. So I think people will be looking to see how Duterte manages this legitimacy question um, amid a lot of these priorities that he's been throwing around. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I think that about covers the major elections. Um, there mm-hmm. are there are a few others, um, you know, namely the uh, parliamentary elections in the Maldives. But we can probably get back to that closer to the actual date. Uh, certainly, yeah. we've discussed the politics there uh, recently. Um, but Prashant, uh, thanks a lot for joining me. As always, be with you. Absolutely. Uh, For our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, but you haven't subscribed yet, uh, make sure you do that so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet uh, left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, please go ahead and do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you uh, have any suggestions about something you'd like to hear us uh, talk about on this podcast or a potential recommendation for a guest, feel free to shoot either of us a message about that. We'd be very happy to take it into consideration. So uh, in the meantime, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more. 